The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is, of course, Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Well, Father, great to be good, here. Good, great to be good. back for another week. We have uh, all kinds of emails from our wonderful wonderful, generous viewers, and so I'd like to jump right into those if we could. Mm -hmm. And the first one I found rather interesting, Father, um, and so I would really, really like to get your response to this. It's from a viewer who says, um, I, he says, I'm a new listener. Thank you for all that you do. I feel a little low after listening to all your videos. I am a conservative Catholic that attends a modernist church. I did not know about modernism until about two weeks ago. But it is intuitive that something is wrong, and once I listen to your explanation, I mostly have been convinced. But to be honest, he says, my reaction is to throw in the towel with the whole thing and not to jump to the traditional faith. I am really disappointed because I thought that the church was a bulwark against the modern world, and now I feel that it is, comp uh, that it is comprised by the modern world or worst. What uh, advice would you offer for this poor soul, Father? I would say what our Lord told his apostles, uh, take courage, I have overcome the world. Right? But St. Paul says, our faith is the victory that overcomes the world. I mean, uh, he's, I think this gentleman, if it is a gentleman, yes. is it a lady? Or it's a gentleman, gentleman, fine. I think this gentleman is experiencing a little bit of what the apostles felt when our Lord was taken prisoner and then finally condemned to death and, and died on the cross and was buried. A certain sense of being bereft, um, um, so, I mean, it's understandable if he had an understanding that uh, the church was uh, uh, incapable of, of being attacked uh, successfully. Uh, but the, the fact is that the church is no more impervious to attack than our Lord himself was. I mean, our Lord personally was attacked and uh, suffered. And our Lord promised also that uh, the church itself would be attacked. And he told his apostles what they would have to suffer for his sake. And people seeing these things happen might have somewhat been somewhat disheartened and, and felt let down. But the fact is, uh, it was, was necessary. After our Lord rose from the dead, um, on the very Easter Sunday evening or afternoon, he was walking along the road to Emmaus with two disciples and explaining to them why it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to die on the cross and make that sacrifice. <clears throat> they still didn't understand. We have a hard time accepting it, but it's true. Uh, St. Pius X told us uh, back in 1907 of his long-standing efforts to convert the modernists and that he found it to be futile. He, and he warned us at that time that they were within the very veins, the very heart, the very bloodstream of the church. <clears throat> and um, that they wanted to attack the church in such a way that they would destroy the very meaning of religion. They would uh, change the very meaning of the word faith. So, um, again, this should not come as a surprise in any way. Rather, uh, actually, I'm surprised at the, our friend's reaction there because he said... If I'm not mistaken, he said something about intuitive. He, he intu intuitively knew something was wrong. Yes. And I would think rather he should be encouraged uh, to find out what exactly is going on and, and, and why it is wrong, to understand, to have the understanding to know what is the problem. And um, here we have the, the church, uh, which has been attacked for all these centuries, and, and the modernists have found a way to, in a sense, breach the walls of the church and get inside, infiltrate. They've been trying for centuries and centuries to do this. And, um, 
And yet the faith endures, and yet the true Catholic religion endures, and the traditional Catholic faith. So even to this date, even, even with the incursions of the modernists, the worst enemies the Church has ever faced, as St. Pius X himself said. Um, the synthesis of all heresies, which has actually uh, gotten into positions of power and hijacked those positions, the faith continues and the religion, the, the true Catholic religion continues. And it's still very much alive in the souls of so many people in the world today who still have the faith. And now are discovering what has happened to them and who want to return to the practice of the traditional Catholic faith. After all, the, the worst efforts of hell against the Church, the faith still continues. And, um, and the Church still continues, too. And um, it is immortal as Christ himself was immortal. But that doesn't mean the Church can't be wounded. That can't even mean that the Church will, could not appear to die. Um, Christ actually under, underwent actual physical death, the separation of the soul and the body. And he did predict that the, the church itself would suffer as he did. Um, so we can't be surprised at these things. Rather, we should marvel at the resilience of the church, which has a supernatural vitality, which comes from Christ himself. It's the mystical body of Christ on earth. And even if in the eyes of the world the church were considered to be killed and, and buried, uh, even her worst enemies have warned that the church will rise from the dead, even as Christ it did. So uh, what should concern our writer here of this email, and I thank him for very much for writing this and expressing this, I appreciate that because he's probably not the only one who experiences this. And, but he's, as far as I recall, at least the only one I know of who's actually written to express these thoughts. And I appreciate them very much. He should actually find it very encouraging and be very grateful to God that he has the true faith. And he recognized the difference between the new order and the true Catholic faith, uh, the new order and the true Catholic religion, and should embrace the, tr the true Catholic religion. That's the grace that God is giving to him now. Um, the church is a bulwark against error uh, and against um, uh, the loss of faith. The modernists have, have redefined faith into something that the church has never considered to be the supernatural virtue of faith. Evidently, this man's has that supernatural virtue of faith and knows the truths of the faith enough to recognize the difference now. And now that God has given him the grace to see the difference, will he, he has an obligation to accept the next grace, and that is to embrace the truth and stay faithful to the church by staying faithful to the traditional Catholic religion. Practically speaking, Father, what, what steps would someone like this take if they were coming from a, a modernist Novus Ordo church and they wanted to become a traditional Catholic? What would they do? Well, recognizing that the Novus Ordo is not Catholicism, but it's modernism, which is really anti-Catholicism. And that the new Mass is not the Mass, it is the anti-Mass. You know, there are those who call it the New Order Mass and so on and so forth. It's actually the anti-Mass is what it is. The New Order is the anti-Mass. It was created... Uh, by enemies of the faith to replace the tradition, the holy sacrifice of the Mass entirely. It didn't succeed, and again, this is what I'm saying, that uh, by the grace of God, it, it cannot succeed, right, mm -hmm. in eradicating the, the true Mass. <clears throat> even though the vast majority of people have accepted it out of confusion, and many of them even reluctantly. And many people like this gentleman have come to see how defective it is. And he should abandon that entirely. It should flee that. It's a false religion. It's anti-Catholicism in its extreme form. And um, he should um, find a true traditional Catholic priest and a true traditional Catholic chapel. And he should talk to that priest and he should do whatever is necessary to uh, become a practicing traditional Catholic. Uh, I don't know where he lives, but uh, if he would let us know, you know his whereabouts, we probably could direct him to a real traditional Catholic priest who'd be very glad to help him Certainly. practice the traditional Catholic faith in its entirety. Yes. Okay, uh, well, the next email, Father, we've had this for several months now, and uh, I know we, we've had this in the queue and uh, keep trying to bring this up on the program but haven't, haven't gotten to it until tonight. Uh, but this viewer says that he is currently reading, or at that time was currently reading Pashendi mm -hmm. by Pope St. Pius X, and uh, he wants to know, Father, if Pope St. Pius X were to write Pashendi today, 
after mm -hmm. seeing the errors of Francis, would he add anything new to his analysis of modernism? Well, I th he might have to add a few paragraphs about Francis by name, you know, because Francis really is the the incarnation of modernism. He he is the apotheosis of modernism. Okay, um, it's as though Francis read Pascendi and said, "This is exactly what I'm going to do." What Saint Pius X condemns here is exactly what I'm going to represent, and he's gone about with a vengeance trying to apply. Um, well, it's as though his entire uh, career is the, the anti-Pascendi. Who was it? Uh, Ratzinger, right? Ratzinger said that Vatican II was the French Revolution in the Church. That's what he said, right? <laughs> and Vatican II was called the anti-syllabus, the syllabus of St. Pius X. Right? So that's why it is perfectly reasonable to refer to Vatican II as the anti-Catholic council, right? And uh, a truly a revolution in and against, against the Catholic, the traditional Catholic faith and the traditional Catholic church. And so, you know, we'd have to, um, we'd have to uh, say that I think Pope St. Pius X himself uh, were he to write Pascendi today, um, would not change anything that he had written. I think what he would do probably is um, examine Vatican II and all that had flowed from Vatican II and sh show exactly how it is the fulfillment of what he wrote in Bishendi. I think he would... He would write, in, in other words, a kind of syllabus of Vatican II, and all that flowed from Vatican II, right to Francis himself, and all that Francis has done, going from the conciliar church to the synodal church, which is a step beyond. And the St. Pius X would say, I wrote this in Bishendi, and here is the fulfillment. I wrote this in Bishendi, and here it is. This is exactly what I was writing about. This is exactly how this has been fulfilled. So he would look upon, I think, Pascendi as being prophetic, and he would look at the fulfillment. In this case, in Pascendi, he was, in a sense, prophesying a, an, an anti-church, the, the, the formation of an anti-Catholic church. And I think he would show how that, that those prophecies were fulfilled in the Novus Ordo. Religion of modernism uh, that was canonized by Vatican II, and the new religion of the Novus Ordo, the new order that was brought into effect by Vatican II. Mm -hmm. And Father, if I'm... If so, I'm, the, the, ultimately, I'm sorry, Tom. I, was, I would say he would say that he would show how that was, what it came out of Vatican II is the fulfillment of what he condemned at, at, uh, at Bishendi. Mm -hmm. Simply that. And Father, if I'm not mistaken, I, I believe uh, Pope St. Pius X was so insightful or, or maybe even prophetic, like you say, um, that uh, up to the point uh, in time where he wrote Pascendi, the modernists actually had not uh, clearly written out uh, and expressed all, all of their thoughts. And it's almost as if, if Pope St. Pius X took all of these, these different things that he saw and he actually organized and, and illustrated their program um, more clearly than any of them had ever done. So certainly, I mean, it, it's almost as well, if you would... Pascendi was the work of St. Pius X, but no doubt he had the input of excellent Catholic theologians. Mm -hmm. I mean, St. Pius X, as a good shepherd, knew uh, whom he could refer to for help, insights, to assess modernism. And modernism was such a, a big and very nebulous topic, sort of like this some huge dark storm cloud you know, forming, that I'm sure he availed himself of the best Catholic minds he had at his disposal. And then he himself organized and uh, basically expressed it in the encyclical we know as Pascendi. We know that. It was ultimately his work. But um, not only that time, but, you know, the, the modernists had been at work for decades before St. Pius X. I mean, he, he starts out the encyclical by saying he had been trying to uh, appeal to the modernists for a, quite a while, evidently.
And it had not, not been the work of a year or two. It had evidently been the work of, of several years, more than several years, that he was trying to appeal to them. And so uh, it wasn't something that he just tried once or twice and then gave up and said, well, they're incorrigible. You could, he, he was a man who was very persevering in his efforts. So to, to say that Pope Pius X had been trying to appeal to the modernists, whatever faith he could rely on with them, for a, do, a dozen years, a decade or two decades, would probably not be uh, in any way exaggerated. And um, during that time, they enunciated their principles. I mean, you go back to Alfred uh, Loisy. You go back to Loisy in, uh, in uh, France. You go to Georges Tirel. Uh, and, you know, in England, you, you, you look at the writings of these modernist leaders, and uh, they, were, they were enunciating their principles. Was St. Pius X reading their minds when he uh, realized there was some, something erroneous in their thinking? No, he is reading their works. So to that extent, he, he, wasn't just, he wasn't just prophetic in so far as he was sort of, uh, sort of envisioning the future. He, but he was so brilliant that he saw exactly where their principles were leading. So one reading Pashendi today might actually see these words as prophetic in seeing them embodied in exactly the teachings of Francis and how they actually are echoed in what Francis says day by day. In, yeah. But um, it, it, I, I don't get me wrong, I do believe that St. Pius X was given a special grace from God to see what was coming. There was a cardinal, I've mentioned this before, a cardinal who con congratulated St. Pius X after he wrote the encyclical and published the encyclical Bashendi. And after, in 1910, he issued the, um, the Oath Against Modernism. The cardinal congratulated St. Pius X for having dealt a death blow to modernism, saved the church from modernism. And the story is that St. Pius X sadly shook his head and said, no, he said, the modernists will be back in force. They've only gone, gone underground right now. But they'll be back in force in uh, half a century, in 50 years, and they will lay waste the church. Now, 1907, 1910, 50 years, we're talking about 1957, 1960. Now, that might well have been of a prophetic nature. But one cannot in any way take away the brilliance of St. Pius X in rationally seeing the import of the principles that the modernists were laying down in their writings and seeing exactly what they were getting at and what conclusions they would lead to. And uh, so I think in Pescenti you actually had both at work. I think you had the brilliant minds of St. Pius X and excellent Catholic theologians who knew the principles of the modernists. But I think you also had a kind of a divine enlightenment on the part of Pius X to see so clearly where everything was going and to know that modernism had not been put to death, had not been killed, as others might well have thought. That he knew that it was something diabolical, that it was not going to simply give up. And the modernists being exactly as he described them, filled with cleverness, audacity, pride that they wouldn't, were not going to go away. So, um, <clears throat> in any case, uh, I think we had the best of human minds, Catholic minds at work here, but I think we also had a divine, divine inspiration guiding the Vicar of Christ, St. Pius, the tenth to see the future of the Church. Absolutely. Okay, <clears throat> then moving on, Father, we have another email, uh, and this one... Uh, reads from a viewer who says um, he was surprised to see how critical Father Jenkins was of the SSPX and FSSP and the Institute of Christ the King uh, for professing one faith with Francis and the uh, Canon of the Mass and the Unicum Mass. And he says, my question is, how can Father Jenkins in principle reconcile his own criticism of these groups 
uh, and yet not attack his involvement with Bishop Kelly, who was consecrated by Bishop Mendez. And Bishop Kelly himself even admitted that uh, he wasn't sure if Bishop Mendez used, at that time, John Paul II's name in the canon of the Mass. Mm -hmm. Do you see any hypocrisy there, Father? I don't see any hypocrisy whatsoever. Although I don't think it's a bad question, you know. So I'm actually glad that the question was asked, but no, I, I don't, there's no hypocrisy there. It reminds me of another question that was asked too by somebody else, which I could get to, but maybe <laughs> out of the program, um, which is a good question, but I think the answer kind of illustrates a point that is very important to make. Um, I myself asked uh, Bishop Mendez once about that, um, whether he used uh, John Paul II's name in the canon and he said that he did, and the way he explained it was this. He said, I don't know whether or not he has the faith, and I don't know whether or not he really is the Pope, but I believe I should give him the benefit of that doubt. Now, in that case, Bishop Mendez would be mistaken, I believe, in giving the benefit of the doubt in a case like that, because I think the Church has spoken rather clearly about that, that a doubtful Pope in practically, in the practical order, is not the Pope at all, in the sense that any attempted use of authority of the papacy would be doubtful. And a doubtful law does not bind one in conscience, right? If the, the authority behind it is, is truly in doubt. But Bishop Mendez understood it that way, that Although he, he doubted John Paul II's faith, he wasn't convinced. Uh, actually, he, he didn't know one way or the other for sure, as he said. He was perplexed. And um, he didn't know whether he was, in fact, a legitimate pope or not. But he, he was giving the benefit of the doubt. Would that constitute a contradiction? The most one could argue is that when one would argue the question of whether or not he should have given him the benefit of the doubt, I think. But that's a very different matter from saying that uh, Bishop Mendez was actually saying, I, am, I know for a fact and I profess that I am one in faith with John Paul II, because he himself expressed to me explicitly the doubt that he was one in faith with John Paul II, but he thought it was necessary to give him the benefit of the doubt. That's all he said. Um... So, I, I personally don't see a contradiction. And the SSPX does not uh, have that, that viewpoint, or the FSSP, or, or these other groups that he mentioned, they, they say that, yes, absolutely, there is no doubt. They, they, are, they are very definite about the fact that, yes, they have to be one in faith with him, you know? And uh, I, would, I, would say, I would say what I would say to Bishop Mendez now. After Bishop Mendez explained that to me, I, I didn't discuss the point with him. Uh, at that at that point, he died not long thereafter. But uh, with regard to um, uh, where I to be able to sit down with him right now, I, I discussed that question of the benefit of the doubt because I think that was I, I would dis I would think that was an error. I wouldn't agree with that. Right? I would say that that would uh, rather argue for omitting his name myself certainly. Um, but um, and so I would argue also with those of the FSSP and so on. But if, if they really know what the man is, is saying, what he's teaching, and they believe, and they're convinced that what he's teaching is contrary to the Catholic faith, then there's no way that they could say, well, I'm in doubt about that. If they're certain that what he's teaching is contrary to the Catholic faith, uh, with regard to Francis, then I think they'd have an obligation to refuse to say those words, that they are one in faith with him. You know, we're talking about uh, John Paul II back in about the year of 1980, you know, the early 1980s, you know, or the late 1980s, 1990. Um, and I don't think things were quite as explicit then as they are now. We see the principles that Francis is following were laid down at Vatican II, certainly, and they were embodied by Paul VI and John Paul II, certainly. But it's become so apparent and so explicit. I think that anybody in the FSSP and the FSP 
FSBX or FSPA, yes, <laughs> would would have to say, okay, there is no doubt in my mind but that what Francis is teaching is contrary to the Catholic faith. And there's no way I can in good conscience even uh, profess a doubt about that. So I cannot in good conscience say I'm one in faith with him. Because if I'm one in faith with him, I believe things that are contrary to the Catholic faith. I just don't see that there's an equivalence um, now uh, with what Archb- with what Bishop Mendes stood for back then. I don't see that. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Uh, then moving on, this viewer says in the uh, in the Book of Destiny by Father Kramer, Father Kramer, sorry, um, he he mentions bishops being referred to as angels. And this viewer asks if you can uh, explain that a little bit more. Is this a traditional Catholic thing where we refer to bishops as angels? Where did this come from? How did this start? Well, this is Father Kramer's interpretation here, and uh, but I, I think if you were to again um, look at the sacred scriptures, I think there'd be a foundation there for looking at bishops of the church in the early days, um, um, as uh, well. You know, they refer to them as the, the leaders and those who who. Well, I've, you know, I'm thinking of the German with Wachstetter, but um, in any case, the those who watch out for the flock and those who watch over the flock and those who, uh, you know, are shepherds, mm-hmm. to the extent that, um, you know, they're given that title and other titles too in sacred scripture, I think you'd have to say that uh, they exercise the role of, of angels. I, I don't... I'd have to really look into that more deeply, though. I, I don't have, uh, I'd say, a compelling answer to give or a full answer to give on that. Uh, why Father Kramer would see them that way, though, I think you'd have to actually go to the book of the Apocalypse and, and re- see the references to the angels and their position in the church and their role in the church, because he's talking about the angels as active in the church here on this earth. And um, in leading the in leading the faith the the flock as it were leading the faithful here on earth through these perilous times. Mm-hmm. So um, you know one can come up with all kinds of uh, interpretations. One can say that well certainly if there are bishops who are going to be bishops and faithful bishops at the time of the Antichrist, they would have to be truly angelic in the sense that they'd have to. Um, be more of heaven than of earth. They'd have to uh, have a, a great, great love for God, um, and uh, untainted by the weaknesses and the faults of this wor- of this world. One can make all kinds of references like that, but to be able to say, well, in this particular scripture, bishops are referred to as angels, I can't do that. Okay. Um, perhaps. Father Kramer himself explains that in the course of his work, uh, The Book of Destiny. I haven't come across that explanation of Father Kramer yet, but he does, in fact, uh, refer to the angels uh, mentioned in the Apocalypse as though they were faithful bishops here on earth. Okay. All right. Um, Then this next one, Father Mike take a little bit more time, but we um, wanted to get to this one as well. Tonight, this viewer says, I have not heard Father Jenkins speak of Dominus Jesus, uh, which was a uh, declaration by the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith uh, during the papacy of John Paul II. Uh, this viewer says that at the time he thought it was horrendous, still <laughs> believes that it was horrendous, but he says, I would really like to hear Father Jenkins' opinion if he would not mind commenting on this document. So the writer himself thinks it's horrendous. Yes, is that right? right? Oh, yeah. interesting. Curious <laughs> one. Uh, well, um, now this is one of those few times you actually gave me a little bit of warning, <laughs> which is why I have this here, okay? Yeah. So I don't just happen to carry this around <laughs> me and have it on the table in front of me. Um, I must say, though, that uh, 90-plus percent of the time, uh, it's a, a, quite a surprise <laughs> what you're going to read to me. In this case, no, because I haven't men- uh, memorized Dominus Jesus. It is a declaration of the Novus Ordo Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith under uh, actual Ratzinger, right, mm-hmm. during uh, John Paul II's tenure. And... Um, 
one, one could actually read the whole thing. I'm not going to do that. One could comment on it. The commentary could take as long as the document itself. But just to uh, kind of mention in summary what it's about, it's, uh, it's dated, the year, I think it's 2000, the year 2000, August 6th, the Feast of the Transfiguration of Our Lord. As I recall, is where this is uh, when it was published. So it goes back more than 20 years, right? And uh, it's, it's interesting because one thing you see in this document is that it repeats over and over and over again. And even that's an understatement. The fact that Jesus Christ is the only Savior, He's the only Son of God, He established the one true Church, it repeats that over and over again. And practically in the same language. Um, and so when, when one reads this document, one reads the statement repeated probably, probably 12, 15 times in the course of this document that there is one true God, one true Savior. He is our Lord Jesus Christ, true Gully God and truly man. This is the teaching of the church. This is what all Catholics must believe. And um, it actually then tries to explain what the relationship is between the one true Christ and the one true church with the religions of the world. And uh, the religious traditions in the world is what it's talking about. So it says here, it's trying to explain the magisterium's particular attention to giving reasons for and supporting the evangelizing mission of the church, above all in connection with the religions, religious traditions of the world. Okay. <laughs> so the question is, is it an ecumenical document? Is it a document that says this is the one true religion, with the one true faith, one true faith, the one true church, the one true Son of God, in opposition to the religions of the world, or is it not? Is it somehow in conjunction with the religions of the world, right? In an ecumenical sense of the word. And so early on, you read in the document, in considering the values which these religions witness to and offer humanity with an open and positive approach, the Second Vatican Council's declaration on the relation of the church to non-Christian religions states the Catholic Church rejects nothing of what is true and holy in these religions. She has a high regard for the manner of life and conduct, the precepts and teachings, which although differing in many ways from her own teaching, nonetheless often reflect a ray of that truth which enlightens all men. <clears throat> what does that mean? Modernism. <laughs> well, it depends on how you interpret it. You know? But it open, again, it opens the door. Having said there's one true God, one true Son, and one true, who is the one true Redeemer, who established the one true Church with the one true faith and one true, uh, one true religion, and this is the one true salvific <clears throat> Savior, you know. And, uh, and they even go so far as to say that one must be saved by this, you know. But then, true to modernist form, then they keep opening the other door. They keep opening the double doors in the front, and then they go back and they open up the, the double doors or the windows to let in some fresh air. They open the windows. And so they're constantly going back and opening that window. But on the other hand, well, look what they say. Uh, the Second Vatican Council takes a positive approach to the religious, the other religions and religious traditions of the world, and uh, even non-Christian religions. Uh, he says that. Religions that don't even profess to believe in Jesus Christ and it talks about what is true and holy in these religions. <clears throat> so again, you wonder, how do they reconcile what they say? That basically all holiness must come from Christ, our, our Lord himself. And then they recognize that in religions that are non-Christian, there are things that are actually holy. And holiness pertains to God, right? And how can something be holy and make one holy in the eyes of God without Christ? as you find it in non-Christian religions. It doesn't make sense. But what he says here, 
this is Cardinal Ratzinger now, is he? Cardinal of Novasordo. Um, and ratified by John Paul II, as it says at the end here, that he approved this. He keeps saying, well, this is a question for theologians that they're working on this. They're trying to figure out, figure out how this happens. <laughs> and so I found it interesting as he goes through this and keeps making the statement, well, this is the faith. This is what you all have to believe. And then when he mentions the relationship of the one true church and one true faith, the other churches and their beliefs, <laughs> then all of a sudden it's a question, well, theologians have to figure out how this, how this works, you know. So it, this happens over and over again in, in the course of the document. So again, it leaves this, again, wide open, right? He says, it follows that all men and women who are saved share, though differently, in the same mystery of salvation. But they share differently in the same mystery of salvation. In Jesus Christ, through his Spirit. And then he goes on and he says, interreligious dialogue, which is part of the church's evangelizing mission, requires an attitude of understanding, a relationship of mutual knowledge, and reciprocal enrichment in obedience to the truth and with respect for freedom. Now, the idea of reciprocal enrichment, well, are, I mean, are you talking about Christ and Antichrist reciprocally enriching each other? <clears throat> the true, the one true faith and the one true religion and of the one true church um, being enriched by other religions, even non-Christian religions, which actually contain certain elements of holiness about them. You know, again, this is so absolutely foreign to the Catholic religion. This is so foreign to the Catholic faith that this document is, despite its con repeated statements about the one true Savior and the one true church that he established and the one true faith, it's continually undercutting that, undercutting that. Every time it mentions it, as often as it mentions this point, that there is one true Savior, established one true church, with one true faith, and one true religion, every time it mentions that, it, it immediately undercuts it. But on the other hand, but on the other hand, and if you read the documents of Vatican II, you find the same thing you know, going over and over again. And uh, this is modernism. This is quintessential modernism. This is classic modernism of contradiction, stating this very, very, in a forthright way, which interpreted, if you interpret the words in the Catholic meaning of the words, it sounds very Catholic. But then it gives you the other side. It gives you an out, right? Again, opening the back door to saying why that is not absolutely true and why we can actually find salvation other ways. But we can't, but we can. Uh, back and forth. Go to the last document of Vatican II, uh, the document Dignitatis Humane Personae, okay, the document on religious liberty. And in order to get the conservative uh, prelates there at the council to vote for this document, they had to add a couple of long paragraphs to the beginning as a preamble to that document talking about the fact that the, there is one true faith, there is one true religion, uh, which was established by one true Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and it's a very Catholic statement. And then immediately after that, they launch into Vatican II. They launch into this modernist, modernist diatribe about how, although everyone has to accept the true faith when he finds it, well, on the other hand, you know, you really can't uh, constrain anyone to accept it, but you can't even restrain anybody from teaching contrary to it. Because everybody has received from God the civil right to actually contradict the true faith. I mean, this is the essential point that they're making there. Everybody has liberty to teach what his sincere religious beliefs. Even if we know that it's blasphemous, God has given them the right to teach blasphemy. And you can't restrain them, except for reasons of public order. Again, this gets right out of Pashendi because Pope Pius X says <clears throat> that uh, the modernist sees no authority over the profession of religion, no matter how false it may be, except for the civil authority has the right to restrain religious expression. But from a religious point of view, God gives you the authority to express whatever your opinion might be about him. He gives you that right, even if it's blasphemous. 
Can God give you a moral authority and a moral right to blaspheme him and to teach others that he's a cosmic mushroom, that he's the sum total of all the energy in the universe, the new age type of idea? Can God endorse your teaching that and give you the right to say that about him? Of course not. If he did that, he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be the God who can neither deceive nor be deceived. He doesn't give people the right to, to lie about him. No matter how goodwill they may be, it's a lie. It's an objective falsehood. He who sent his son Jesus Christ in the world to teach and to die on the cross for us <clears throat> cannot say, but you don't have to listen to him. You can teach I'm the cosmic mushroom if you want to. And I give you the right to do that. It's, that's, that's blasphemous. That's why that last document of the Council on Religious Liberty is blasphemy. It's just out-and-out out blasphemy is what it is. <clears throat> but I mean this document too. It, how can the one true church of established by the Son of God have some kind of reciprocal arrangement of enrichment and be enriched by pagan religions? How is it possible? What does it say about Christ implicitly? But this is what the document says. It implies that other religions have truths or values or powers or holiness that the church actually doesn't have that the church can be enriched by receiving from outside of itself. It's almost like saying Christ can be enriched by, by false gods, by, by, by things that come to us from false religions and false gods. And again, it's blasphemous to say these things. So this goes back and forth, back and forth. And uh, again, uh, I'm not going to just keep repeating the same thing as the document does here. But to now notice, he goes on here and he says he condemns the condemns certain false ideas, relativistic attitudes towards truth, relativistic attitudes toward religion that just any old religion will do, as long as it suits me, it's fine. He this document actually condemns errors, okay, and when it condemns the errors, it actually condemns errors that are genuinely erroneous. Again, so somebody could read this and say, well, gee, that, that's right, that's against the faith. That's against the faith. Against the relativistic mentality, he writes here, and you say, boy, that's right, you know. <laughs> Amen, brother. Hallelujah. You know, you can say as you're reading the document, yes, finally we're getting some definite statement about what is true and what is false. But then you see what he's saying is also erroneous. And he's hiding it under this display of orthodoxy. In raising these questions, this is typical what modernists do. They raise questions and leave them unanswered. <clears throat> In this document, oh, the theologians are still discussing about how this can be. <clears throat> when I sat in the classroom in Innsbruck, Austria, listening to the professors go on in German, I noticed the tendency, I noticed the pattern where <clears throat> they would make certain definite statements and then raise a question, a question about the faith. And they would just leave it hanging there and never answer it. The impression they would give is that the, no one really knew, that there really was no answer. And they'd leave people pondering, you know, gee, I wonder, I wonder how that could be. Unless someone went off and did some research on his own, he might be left with the impression there was really no answer. The church had no answer. But if one does go off and do research, they might find out that St. Thomas Aquinas answered that very question 850 years ago. But they're not going to tell you that. It, it even gave me the impression, and I understand that there, certain Protestant divines actually did this, so it wouldn't surprise me to find out the modernists did this, that they go back to St. Thomas Aquinas, and they find out objections he raised, and they use them today. Because nobody knows the answers that he gave to those objections. And uh, I think that's probably very likely. Because I've heard objections raised by others outside the faith that sound like they come st straight out of the, uh, the articles of St. Thomas's Summa. Pretty shrewd. It's uh, clever, not exactly honest, but very clever, right? Be shrewd as serpents, but guileless as doves. Well, they're shrewd as serpents, all right, but they're not exactly guileless as doves. Modernists are quite the opposite. And so, um, unfortunately, this document conceals within its folds modernist errors. He says here, for example, um, 
For this reason, and I won't tell you what the reasons are, a distinction between theological faith and belief in the other religions must be firmly held. So we have to firmly hold there's a difference between theological faith and belief. What does that, that mean? That you find in other religions. What does that mean? If faith is the acceptance in grace of revealed truth, which makes it possible to penetrate the mystery in a way that allows us to understand it coherently, then belief in other religions is that sum of experience and thought that constitutes the human treasury of wisdom and religious aspiration, which man in his search for truth has conceived and acted upon in his relationship to God and the Absolute. <clears throat> so, in the church, we have theological faith. <clears throat> in other religions, we have belief. Okay? What does that mean? Good question. I mean, you have to keep reading and say, okay, let me try to figure out what he's actually getting at here. It's interesting, though, when you, when you read that statement, that he says, belief in other religions constitutes the treasury of wisdom and religious experience and the aspirations, the sum of the experience of others. Because that's what the modernist says constitutes faith. The modernist says that what he's saying is, is belief here actually is faith. So it's, it's odd that he's actually trying to make some kind of a distinction between the two. But the weird thing is what he says next. Again, it gives and it takes. The distinction is not always borne in mind in current theological reflection. Okay. The, thus, theological faith, the acceptance of the truth revealed by the one and triune God, is often identified with belief in other religions, which is religious experience. Okay. The modernist does identify those two things. Here he's distinguishing them from each other. He says, nowadays, they're sometimes conflated. But then he goes on, and you, you, you read where, again, it, he contradicts himself. The Second Vatican Council, in considering the customs, precepts, and teachings of the other religions, teaches that, although differing in many ways from their, her, her own teaching, Catholic teaching, these, nevertheless, often reflect a ray of that truth which enlightens all men. Well, we know that that is the Word of God, right? From St. John's preamble, the proemium, to his Gospel, and the last Gospel of the Mass. So, in other words, they're being enlightened by Christ. Even non-Catholic religions, even non-Christian religions, have rays of Christ in them. Hello? The Church's tradition reserves the designation inspired texts to the canonical books. Okay, that's fine. And believes that these firmly, faithfully, and without error convey the revelation of God. Okay? A Catholic statement. Okay? Nevertheless, again, no, notice the reversal. Nevertheless, God, who desires to call all peoples to himself in Christ and to communicate to them the fullness of his revelation and love, does not fail, God does not fail, to make himself present in many ways, not only to individuals, but also to entire peoples through their spiritual riches, of which their religions are the main and essential expression, even when they contain gaps, insufficiencies, and errors. God, as he says, makes himself present to whole, uh, what does he say, entire peoples through their own religions, even non-Christian religions. Uh, in the very, he says, an essentially ex expression, in their ex essential expression of their religions. Therefore, the sacred books of other religions, which in actual fact, direct and nourish the existence of their followers, receive from the mystery of Christ the elements of goodness and grace which they contain. To the Bhagavad Gita, who would have thought? But the rays of the teachings of Jesus Christ 
are shining through the Bhagavad Gita. Right? Who would have thought the Quran? It shows the rays of the teaching of Christ, right? I mean, even though it says that those who believe that Christ is the Son of God should be beheaded, right? Their heads should be removed, uh, strike their necks, and so on. Um, you see the double dealing that goes on here, so characteristic of modernism. So I'm actually glad that this gentleman asked this question because, again, this text could be very deceptive uh, because of most of what it says. But there's poison here. There's poison folded into these, this text here. Um, he goes back again to contemporary theological reflection and talks about, okay, where are the theologians and all this? What are they trying to tell us? On and on. Um, again, I, again, I don't want to you know, belabor the point, but I think it is a very fine illustration of uh, modernism. Um, well, if I may just make two more references here, yeah. again, to kind of hopefully clarify this point, since he asked. This is sometimes pointed to, by the way, as a very Catholic document by people who don't understand modernism. So he says, furthermore, the salv salvific action of Jesus Christ with and through his Spirit extends beyond the visible boundaries of the church to all humanity. The salvific act of Jesus Christ through the Holy Ghost, I guess that's the name of the Spirit, extends to all humanity. This is the salvific action of our Lord. What is that implying? All this holds true not only for Christians, but also for all men of goodwill, in whose hearts grace is active invisibly. So here you get to the Karl Rotter, the anonymous Christian. People who don't know they're Christian, don't know Christ, but they really are Christian, deep down. Implicitly Christian. Somehow. In a way known to God. In other words, it's a way that God has not revealed. It's a way that God has not revealed in the teaching of Christ. It's a way that God has not revealed in his church. It is known only to God. There's a way he works in the souls of men to save them. So this, again, flatly contradicts what goes before it. And this is what modernism is all about. Um, there are other statements in here that are also equally contradictory, where they say this, and then they say, nevertheless. This, but nevertheless. And uh, they finally get to the point in closing this document or going near the end where they talk about the, the truth of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church. And the use of that word subsists is, do they actually define it? They actually do define it in the texts. It says here that um, this church, the true church established by Christ, constituted and organized as a society in the present world subsists in, and they use the word subsisted in, the Catholic Church, governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him. Then they explain, with the expression subsisted in, subsists in, the Second Vatican Council sought to harmonize two doctrinal statements. And get a load of those two doctrinal statements it's trying to harmonize. On the one hand, the Church of Christ, despite the divisions which exist among Christians, continues to exist fully only in the Catholic Church. And, on the other hand, here we go again, that outside of her structure, many elements can be found of sanctification and truth. So there are sanctifying elements in other religions, even those that are not Christian. What is it saying? It is, it is teaching modernism, a flat contradiction in the faith, and a flat contradiction to the Catholic faith. So even as it is affirming faith, it is denying it. It even goes so far as to say the Spirit of Christ has not refrained from using other religions as means, means of salvation. 
What does that tell you? What does that make of all the other things that are stated in this document that sounds so Catholic? Um, the Second Vatican Council limited itself to the statement that God bestows salvation in ways known to himself. So he has like a separate deal with certain <laughs> souls. Theologians are seeking to understand this question more fully. Again, so you see the pattern here. I'm going to actually call it quits here. <laughs> Uh, and I apologize for being prolix and dealing with this thing, but uh, I just think it is such a perfect expression of modernist perfidy that uh, uh, I can see why our writer says that he finds it horrendous. horrendous. Is that the word he uses? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you for that, Father. Is there uh, anything else that you'd like to add in closing? Well, Tom, you always ask for something uh, encouraging, yes, right? right. <laughs> so uh, I guess I'd refer back to our initial email here. You know, we look at the situation of the world today, and we're trying to, to understand what's happening. And uh, the worst situation would be is that all of these things would be happening, and we'd have no understanding as to why they're happening. And therefore, we would not know the right thing to do. Uh, the greatest blessing of God to anyone today is uh, to enable us to understand what is happening in terms of our faith and to realize that this actually confirms our faith. It doesn't attack our faith or undermine our faith. This is actually the fulfillment of what God himself has revealed to us in so many ways, in prophecy, in, in the scriptures, and through the church and her, the statements of her, her pontiffs and the statements of her, uh, of her doctors, the doctors of the church, even uh, statements of legitimate private revelations that the church has said are worthy of belief, they all point to this time in history coming and the church undergoing these trials, meaning you and I also are part of that. Uh, the two of us, and all of those who have the true faith going through these trials. So, as I say, rather than undermine our faith and, and in any way discourage us, we should take great encouragement from this and see it as confirmation of our faith. We realize that what's happening in the world today is a rejection of Jesus Christ, the rejection of his kingship. And if there's one proof positive that Jesus Christ, and he alone, is truly Lord, Savior, and King. It is what's happening to the world without him. When the world rejects him, we see what happens. And if anybody needed anything to convince them that the, the kingship of Christ is absolutely necessary for the good order of this world, certainly the events of today should make it eminently clear to any doubters, even the doubting Thomases of our own day, <clears throat> that Christ himself is Lord, is King, and he is the only answer to all of this disorder. We're, we're kind of witnessing in our own latter day, as it were, uh, what Adam and Eve saw after they sinned. And after they sinned, they were struck by the the the, the rapid, drastic deterioration of order in the world, starting with their own souls. And we are seeing that right now, in a sense, with a vengeance. And if there's anything that can move anybody, really of goodwill, to repent of sin and to embrace the true faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, it would be seeing what's happening in the world without Christ, seeing what becomes of the world because of sin and the rejection of our Lord. So let's take courage from that. Let's thank God that we have the faith to see that and uh, pray that we have not only a, a, an invincible faith, but an indomitable hope and an absolute uh, um, you know, desire to love our Lord with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. Not only, in, not only in heaven, but to begin here, to strive for that, to love our Lord with all of our powers of loving and to be absolutely faithful to him. That's what, that's what God is, 
is not only asking of us, this is what is required of us today. So um, I would just exhort everyone to uh, to that. Absolutely. Thank you, Father. Thank you for that. Thanks for being you here. You probably tonight. have some words of uh, encouragement too, Tom, <laughs> don't you? Uh, you always have some very uplifting things to say. And I think you said it all tonight, but <laughs> <laughs> hit okay. the nail on the head as usual. So, I see. Well, thank you for that. God yeah. bless all of our viewers, and uh, we, I want you to know that I do pray for you every day at the altar, and offer Mass uh, monthly for your intentions. Too. Absolutely. Yep. Thank you, Father. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.